You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of... the typhoony climes of western Japan here in September of 2022. And you're tuned into episode 425 of the Corbett Report podcast, Blood on the Cutting Room Floor. Now, yes, as I record this in late September of 2022, yes, there is a typhoon passing by overhead, so if you hear any loud gusts of wind or things blowing over outside, uh, you will forgive me. But uh, nonetheless, through uh, frog and rain and sleet or hail, I'll continue to do what I do, or is that the U.S. Postal Service? Anyway, uh, propaganda, by the way. Of course, my listeners will know more about the real story of that and the potential rival to the USPS that was created by Lysander Spooner, but I digress. What we are here to talk about today is not the Postal Service, but about uh, what what you just saw, hopefully, in the past week or so, the uh, part three, and thus the concluding part of my three-part documentary on the history of Al-Qaeda called False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, available at CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda. If you are looking for the full documentary, all the downloads, audio and video, all of the links to all of the platforms on which it's hosted, and the complete transcript, all 50,000 words of that complete uh, transcript of the total documentary, part one, part two, and part three, the one-stop shop, the one link you need is corbettreport.com slash Al-Qaeda, A-L-Q-A-E-D-A. If you have not imbibed that documentary yet, I suggest that you do. I think it is worth your time and attention, and it is by far and away the largest documentary project that I have ever embarked on and completed, finally. So, that was a lot of work. But, (laughs) as I've been at pains to stress in every single uh, event or interview in which I've been speaking, the 9-11 Truth Film Festival or the watch-alongs that I've been doing with Ryan Christian, Last American Vagabond, or elsewhere, I've been at pains to stress that as much as I tried, and I give you my personal signed, sealed, delivered guarantee that I tried to squeeze as much information as humanly possible into those three parts of that documentary. I am the first to say this is not the one and only documentary that covers absolutely everything of everything you need to know in the last 50 years or a couple hundred years of history (laughs) surrounding the topic of Al-Qaeda. Of course not. Uh, This documentary easily could have been twice or three times as long and still not included everything that it should have included. But in the interests of making it watchable, viewable, humanly possible to view (laughs) by your average person, actually not even your average person, if you are the type of person who watched all five plus hours of that documentary, you are definitely above average in today's one minute or 30 second attention span TikTok era. Um, you are definitely above average. So I did try to make some compromise between viewability and and uh, and comprehensiveness of information. And as I say, I tried to squeeze as much as I possibly could into those five hours, five plus hours. But still, it was not enough. And there are things that 
In fact, not only was I planning or hoping to put in, but things that I actually wrote, some of which actually not only got recorded, but even edited by Brock and was actually in the timeline in the project and was there until I made the decision to remove it in the interest of putting in other information that I thought was valuable to include. So there's a lot of blood on the cutting room floor with this project, as I hope you could appreciate. And as I say, this ranges not only from the things that were actually edited and ready to go and actually placed in the documentary until it was pulled out, as you will see coming up in a bit here, but also incredibly important pieces of the story that I just didn't get time to, to put in there. For example, Ayman al-Zawahiri just kind of disappears from the uh, the plot, certainly after part two. In part three, he's hardly mentioned at all. Oh yeah, and by the way, he died. <laughs> I mean, kind of a quick summary of the last decade of al-Qaeda myth-making. Um, but there are important parts to the Zawahiri story that I didn't get to. For example, how about the incredibly bizarre tale of... Zawahiri's aborted, failed attempt to travel to Chechnya in 1996, which we can learn about from such sources as the Wall Street Journal that in 2002 published an article, Saga of Dr. Zawahiri Sheds Light on the Roots of Al-Qaeda Terror, and talking about that incident and getting stopped on his way into Chechnya by the Russians, uh, literally held for months um, they had access to his laptop, but in the end, they believed his story. He was just a salesman, didn't know what was happening. Oh, why are you getting me? Oh, I don't know. And they let him go. There you go. The big Al-Qaeda scary boogeyman leader who would go on to be number two, and then eventually number one of the Al-Qaeda creation, just got away from the Russians, huh? There's, I think there's more to that story. Anyway, I'll obviously include a link to that Wall Street Journal uh, article in the show notes so you can at least get up to speed on what the official story is there. And there are other incredible as aspects to the Zawahiri story, like, uh, as was reported in 2002 by Lawrence Wright in The New Yorker, who wrote The Man Behind Bin Laden. Because uh, for people who don't know, the, the old official story of Al-Qaeda was that actually Zawahiri was the brains behind Al-Qaeda, and he was the real man. And Bin Laden was just kind of the front for the group. That was a popular, popularly held mainstream conception for many years. That has changed in recent years, and now they're like, ah, Zawahiri was basically no one. It was all Bin Laden all along. But back in the day, he was the man behind Bin Laden, and so Lawrence Wright was writing in 2002 about such, such events as, did you know, they almost, they came this close to getting Zawahiri the week before 9-11. That's right. There was this incredible uh, attempt to get him in Sana'a in, 2000, uh, in 2001, right the week before 9-11. But according to Lawrence Wright's CIA source, quote, we sent a few people over there and they made a colossal screw up. While our guys were conducting a surveillance of the hospital, the guards caught them with their video cameras. The plan was compromised and Zawahiri returned to Afghanistan. Oops, oh, he gets away, and then 9-11 happens. Oh, wow, wouldn't you know it? So I, I did want to include that tidbit at the very least, because it very much forms a piece of all of these, oh, and then he got away, and oops, so there was a colossal screw-up, and they went on, and uh, oh, they got through the dragnet somehow or other, time after time after time. It was just another example, and I thought an important one, but it ultimately didn't even make it into the final cut of the documentary. 
So there's a, there's so many different things like that. So I, as I say, I'll put those links to those articles in the show notes so that you can explore them. But let's get into some of the actual edited material that was ready to go, that was actually there in the documentary, but that I decided to remove in the interest of time, um, including some important information. So, for example, uh, the Osama bin Laden story obviously rests on a large degree of myth-making about the Bin Laden family and his connection to that family, which there's been a lot of myth-making about. Um, and who are the Bin Ladens? And how? What, what about all their business connections and their connections into the Bush family and other such things? That was something that I did explicitly cover in the documentary, but that got taken out. So let's watch a little clip um, from the documentary that uh, that did not make it into the final cut, talking specifically about the Bin Laden family and its political connections. The idea of Osama Bin Laden as the leader of a radical global terror movement itself raises a number of questions about his ties to the world of intelligence. As we have seen, despite repeated official denials, reports of Osama Bin Laden's direct connections to U.S. intelligence including his own brother's 1985 assertion that Osama was the liaison between the U.S., the Saudi government, and the Afghan rebels during the Soviet-Afghan war, persisted. Regardless of the precise nature of that relationship, as a member of the famed bin Laden family, and one of the many heirs to the fortune of construction magnate Mohammed bin Laden, Osama enjoyed unprecedented personal access to the Saudi royal family, including Prince Turki al-Faisal, the head of Saudi intelligence during the run-up to 9-11. What's more, bin Laden's wealthy and influential family was itself connected to the highest levels of the American business establishment and was actively protected by the U.S. government on numerous occasions. Bin Laden's eldest half-brother, Salem bin Laden, co-founded Arbusto Energy in 1978 with George W. Bush. Arbusto, which was rebranded as Bush Exploration Co. and went millions of dollars in debt in its first years of operation, was rescued when it was bought out by Harkin Energy, itself plagued by scandal and questions about its connections to the infamous Bank of Credit and Commerce International. But the Bin Laden family's connections to the U.S. establishment do not end there. In 1996, FBI agents in the Washington field office were investigating the World Assembly of Muslim Youth, a suspected terrorist organization that included Abdullah bin Laden, the group's president and treasurer, and Omar bin Laden, both half-brothers of Osama. BBC News uncovered internal FBI documents showing how the agents were ordered to stop their investigation of the brothers. The case was only reopened the week after 9-11 and the day after both brothers fled the U.S. with FBI permission. In 1998, another FBI investigation into the bin Laden brothers this one initiated by the New York field office, was called off by the State Department because, it was revealed, the Bin Laden family had been granted Saudi diplomatic passports in 1996 and thus had diplomatic immunity inside the United States. Former U.S. President George H.W. Bush is known to have met with the Bin Ladens in Saudi Arabia at least twice in his role as an advisor to the Carlyle Group, the global private equity firm. On the morning of 9-11, Osama bin Laden's half-brother Shafiq bin Laden was the guest of honor at a meeting of the Carlyle Group in Washington, which George H.W. Bush was also addressing. And, infamously, in the days after 9-11, two dozen members of the bin Laden family and over 100 members of the Saudi royal family 
were flown to assembly points in Texas and Washington, and then flown out of the country. At least one of these flights took place during the total ban on civilian air traffic over North American airspace. The FBI's own documents show that the Bureau believed the Bin Laden family flight out of the country, carrying suspected terrorists Abdullah and Omar Bin Laden, was chartered by Osama Bin Laden himself. Even so, some of the passengers, including Abdullah, were not even interviewed in person by the FBI before their departure. We had about 24 members of Bin Laden's family and uh, in America, students and... And His Majesty felt it's not fair for those innocent people to be subjected to any harm. On the other hand, we understood had a high emotion. So, with coordination with the FBI, we got them all out. Unsurprisingly, none of this history became part of the official story of 9-11. Oh, but wait, I can already hear the debunkers and skeptics out there saying, no, okay, yes, of course, the Bin Laden family is hugely politically connected and a very interesting family from many perspectives, but that's completely irrelevant because, as we all know, they disowned Osama way back in 94 before any of this terror nonsense really got going. Ah, he was... He was a black sheep. They cast him out. He has nothing to do with the Bin Ladens, really. Yes, of course, I did also make a specific section of the documentary that would have refuted that skeptical argument um, that also got cut. By 1994, Osama Bin Laden, although still largely unknown to the general public in the West, was already being touted as a major terrorist threat by the U.S. intelligence community. In April of that year, the Saudi government revoked bin Laden's citizenship, and later that same month, the bin Laden family issued a two-sentence statement publicly disowning Osama. But both moves, it seems, were illusions. According to classified intelligence reports, the Saudis had brokered a deal with bin Laden when he left the kingdom in 1991. The Saudi government would publicly disown Osama, but they would allow him to leave the country and continue preaching jihad, even offering financial aid for his operations so long as they were not directed against the kingdom. This deal was evidently still in effect after the Saudis revoked bin Laden's citizenship in April 1994, as later that month Osama traveled to Albania as part of an official Saudi delegation. The bin Laden family's public disowning of Osama was similarly disingenuous. Osama's half-brother Yeslem bin Laden admitted that the family shared a joint Swiss bank account with Osama for several years after the break. And Yuslam's ex-wife, Carmen, gave an interview in 2004 stating that she cannot believe that the family have cut off Osama completely. This view was shared by Vincent Canestraro, the former head of the CIA Counterterrorism Center, Michael Scheuer, the former head of the CIA Bin Laden unit, and the French Intelligence Service, which issued a memo in the summer of 2000 claiming that they found it more and more likely that Bin Laden had maintained contacts with certain members of his family. For those who felt that Able Danger got relatively short shrift in Part 2 on 9-11, uh, I agree. And in fact, there was more on Able Danger in the original cut of the documentary. However, as revealed to the public in dramatic testimony on the floor of the House by Congressman Kurt Weldon years later, this information was actively suppressed, and officers in the program were ordered not to pursue these leads. Two weeks after 9-11, I took the basic information in this chart down to the White House. I had asked for a meeting with Steve Hadley, 
who at that time was Deputy National Security Advisor. The chart was smaller, it was two feet by three feet, but the same information was in the center. Steve Halley looked at the chart and he said, Congressman, where did you get that chart from? I said, I got it from the military. Now, Mr. Speaker, what's interesting in this chart of Al-Qaeda, and you can't see this from a distance, but right here in the center is the name of the leader of the New York cell. And that name is very familiar to the people of America. That name is Muhammad Atta. And we have to ask the question, why have these issues not been brought forth before this day? I had my chief of staff call the 9-11 Commission staff and ask the question, why did you not mention able danger in your report? Deputy Chief of Staff said, well, we looked at it, but we didn't want to go down that direction. So the question, Mr. Speaker, is why did they not want to go down that direction? Where will that lead us? Why do we not want to see the answers to the questions I've raised tonight? Who made the decision to tell our military not to pursue Muhammad Atta? And then when we get past 9-11 into the war of terror itself, this is where the absolute mad headlong rush began and trying to cram as much as possible into the two-hour part three segment was very difficult and a lot of blood on the cutting room floor from part three, including uh, the ostensible beginning point of the war of terror, the Afghanistan. We went in for, because of 9-11. Well, since the documentary quite, I think, thoroughly debunks that point, the question that might be left hanging there is, well, if it wasn't about 9-11, what was it about? Why did they, why were they so interested in going into Afghanistan? And I have done a lot of work on that over the years. I have several videos now that go into that in a lot of depth. Um, I did try to cram and condense that material down into a couple of minutes that at the very least would explain a little bit in a little bit greater detail why they started with Afghanistan, but uh, that unfortunately also got cut. Uh, here it is, in case you were curious. The public was told that the war was a response to 9-11, that it was the first salvo in the global war on terror that will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. But beginning with the invasion of Afghanistan and continuing throughout the so-called War on Terror, a curious pattern emerged. The targets of the terror war always coincidentally happened to have geopolitical, geostrategic, and geoeconomic value for the US and its allies beyond its status as a supposed terrorist haven. Afghanistan affords a prime transportation corridor for rich Caspian Sea oil and gas reserves, a fact that led the Taliban to Texas in the 1990s for talks with UNICAL. As the heart of the so-called Golden Crescent, Afghanistan supplied as much as 90% of the world's opium until the Taliban almost eradicated the poppy crop in the year prior to the invasion. The country also harbors one of the richest treasure troves of untapped minerals and rare earth elements in the world, with copper, iron ore, lanthanum, neodymium, aluminum, gold, silver, zinc, mercury, and lithium deposits estimated to have a value of over $1 trillion. And, in 1997, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who, as we have already seen, 
helped draw the Soviets into Afghanistan by launching Operation Cyclone in 1979, thereby playing his own part in the story of Al-Qaeda. Wrote that American military intervention in Eurasia was going to be needed to assure America's global primacy in the 21st century. He also warned that getting the American public on board with such a military undertaking was going to be extremely difficult, except in the circumstance of a truly massive and widely perceived direct external threat. Perhaps it is no surprise, then, to learn that the first major military directive of the Bush administration, National Security Presidential Directive 9, calling for military options against Taliban targets in Afghanistan, including leadership, command control, air and air defense, ground forces, and logistics, was requested in March of 2001, drafted by June, and presented to the President on September 4, 2001, seven days before 9-11. By the first week of September, the process had arrived at a strategy that was presented to principals and later became NSPD-9, the President's first major substantive national security decision directive. It was presented for a decision by principals on September 4, 2001, seven days before the 11th, and later signed by the President with minor changes and a preamble to reflect the events of September 11th in October. Now, as I say, of course, that only skims the surface of what was really going on with Afghanistan. But for people who are interested in that in much greater depth, I would suggest you type Afghanistan into my search bar. You will find, as I say, several videos that I have done over the years talking in much greater detail about all of those points and how they relate to the bigger story of what was being proffered to the public about the War of Terror versus what was actually taking place. Um, there's a lot more there, obviously. Um, moving along, uh, as I have intimated a few times now, one of the most glaring, I think, uh, omissions, well, it, I, I guess it's an omission it, because it didn't end up getting into the final cut of the documentary, although I did think about it and I did write about it and I did, and Brock even did edit a portion of it, is the illegal rendition black site torture program that the CIA was running as part of this war of terror which is an incredibly important part of the story for a number of reasons, not only in and of itself, but also because, as I hope my audience is aware, the 9-11 Commission report was largely based on torture testimony that is inadmissible in court, which is precisely part of the reason why they cannot bring KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11 from A to Z, um, to, to a trial. They cannot put him on trial because of this problem of, oh, the torture that was used to extract the false information from him, and which may lead to some sort of cutting of some sort of plea deal where ultimately none of the information about this will ever have to come out. They'll classify it and seal it away like the JFK records and everything else. So, um, in fact, there's been some interesting developments on that in the very near future, which I plan on covering in New World next week. Um, I can't tell you exactly when the next New World next week will take place. James M. Pilato has been involved in moving to a new place, and I'm not sure if that's going to happen this week or what have you, but I, I hope we will be able to cover the latest developments on the torture scandal, which are still ongoing. Um, but at any rate, uh, I did, as I say, have an entire section of the documentary that at the very least broached the subject. It didn't obviously did not go into depth or detail or do any justice, but at the very least, the idea of the illegal torture program was there in the original draft of the documentary. 
Instead, a different set of lies would need to be found to sell the public on the illegal invasion of a sovereign nation. On September 17, 2001, President Bush signed a still-classified directive granting the CIA the power to secretly imprison and interrogate detainees at so-called black sites. By November, the CIA General Counsel was already attempting to expand the definition of interrogation to include torture. As the Jerusalem Post later reported, On November 26, 2001, soon after the September 11th attacks on the U.S., the CIA General Counsel wrote that the Israeli example could serve as a possible basis for arguing regarding terrorist detainees that torture was necessary to prevent imminent, significant, physical harm to persons, where there is no other available means to prevent the harm. But torture had not been forsworn by the United States and most other nations out of moral concerns for the rights of terrorists. It has long been understood that torture is useless for obtaining reliable intelligence from detainees. What it is very good at doing is getting those detainees to confess whatever their interrogators want them to confess. The CIA, under pressure from the Pentagon and the White House to produce intelligence linking al-Qaeda and Iraq, suddenly had a way to produce that intelligence, and they would not have to wait long for their opportunity to use it. At around the same time that bin Laden was retreating to Tora Bora, a Libyan national named Ibn al-Libi was captured by the Pakistani army and handed over to U.S. forces at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. Al-Libi was turned over to the CIA for interrogation under the agency's new Enhanced Interrogation Rules. Under the supervision of newly appointed Station Chief Rich Blee, Michael and Casey managed the handling of al-Libi, and it was not long before he was saying exactly what his interrogators wanted him to say. Bin Laden had sent two high-level al-Qaeda terrorists to Iraq for biological and chemical weapons training. Of course, the story was not true. Al-Libi couldn't answer even the most basic questions about his tale. He couldn't name any of the Iraqi officials involved, identify what biological or chemical materials were being used for the training, or even identify where the training occurred. The Defense Intelligence Agency immediately dismissed the story as a fabrication, noting that, it is more likely that this individual is intentionally misleading the debriefers. Remarkably, even the CIA itself issued a highly classified report on Iraqi support for terrorism, warning that the claim of Iraqis training al-Qaeda agents came from sources of varying reliability. By 2003, the story had completely fallen apart. Al-Libi had recanted his claim, and the CIA had withdrawn all intelligence reports based on his information. But by that point, they had already served the administration's purpose, becoming another part of the growing al-Qaeda Iraq myth. Several of the detainees, uh, in particular some high-ranking detainees, have said that uh, Iraq provided some training uh, to al-Qaeda in uh, chemical weapons uh, development. So yes, there are contacts between Iraq and al-Qaeda. We've learned that Iraq has trained al-Qaeda members in bomb-making, in poisons, and deadly gases. But fabrications about clandestine meetings and secret training could only go so far toward motivating the public for war. In order to really sell the public on Iraq's centrality to the war on terror, it would be helpful for the neocons to be able to point to an act of terror undeniably perpetrated by the Iraqis. And, since Saddam Hussein was not willing to oblige, an incident would have to be created. 
Moving right along. Here's something that I know has come up and that uh, when you talk about the War of Terror, most people will probably bring up this particular quotation. It's from General Wesley Clark, and it's about the the plan that was revealed to him in the immediate wake of 9-11. Oh yeah, they have a plan to go into uh, five seven countries in five years, and here they are, and here's the list. Um, I, as I say, I'm sure that my long-term audience all know about this clip. Nonetheless, it's absolutely something that should be included in a history of the War of Terror, but again, was cut for time. Um, but I did, obviously, I did have General Clark's uh, statement and its context there in the original cut of the documentary. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just... He said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. Ultimately, the war on terror was not about Al-Qaeda, and it was not confined to Afghanistan or Iraq. Instead, it was a blank check a convenient excuse for achieving the neocons' foreign policy objectives in the Middle East and reshaping the world in the process. In 2007, as the war in Iraq was floundering, the neocons attempted to fail forward by redirecting the public's attention to the next target in their war of terror, Iran. And here's something that I thought was very relevant to the story of the war of terror. Um, that, again, ultimately didn't make it in at the end, but I think is a story that, again, long, old, old-timers uh, in the crowd will remember this story as it developed in the early 2000s, but I, I think probably has been shoved down the collective memory hole at this point. It's about P2OG. What is P2OG, you might ask? I'm glad you ask, because I did talk about it. In 2002, a Pentagon advisory group called the Defense Science Board proposed that the U.S. government improve the Defense Department's intelligence in the war on terror by developing an entirely new capability to proactively, preemptively evoke responses from adversary terrorist groups. The new Secret Counterintelligence Unit, dubbed Proactive Preemptive Operations Group, or P2OG, would field a team of 100 highly specialized people with unique technical and intelligence skills such as information operations, PSYOP, network attack, covert activities, SIGINT, HUMINT, SOF, influence warfare deception operations, to improve information collection by stimulating reactions from terrorist targets. In addition to goading al-Qaeda terrorists into actually committing acts of terrorism, the proposal also called for creating a red team of particularly diabolical thinkers to plot imaginary terror attacks on the United States so the government can plan to thwart them. This stunning suggestion was reported briefly by veteran Los Angeles Times intelligence reporter William Arkin, who noted the dramatic expansion of the Pentagon's reliance on Black World Covert Operations in an October 2002 article, The Secret War. The article reports the proposal's reasoning as given. Provoking al-Qaeda into committing acts of terrorism would flush the terrorists out and expose them to quick response attacks by U.S. forces. Other reporters, like Counterpunch's Chris Floyd, had a different assessment. In other words, 
And let's say this plainly, clearly, and soberly, so that no one can mistake the intention of Rumsfeld's plan. The United States government is planning to use cover and deception and secret military operations to provoke murderous terrorist attacks on innocent people. Let's say it again. Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, and the other members of the unelected regime in Washington plan to deliberately foment the murder of innocent people, your family, your friends, your lovers, you, in order to further their geopolitical ambitions. Whatever the case, a remarkable story began to play out as the easy victory of the Iraq invasion turned into the protracted agony of the Iraq occupation. A cycle of increasingly violent sectarian attacks between Sunni and Shiite forces in the country also began to successfully target American occupation forces with ambushes, firefights, bombings, and the ever-present threat to American vehicles, improvised explosive devices. The attacks increasingly became associated with a new group that had only sprung up in the wake of the occupation, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. A pretty important point to make in a story of false flags in the War of Terror era, don't you think? Yeah, I think so too. Anyway, as I say, these, in fact, what we have just watched are just the the substantial segments that were all edited and ready to go and actually in the documentary um, before they were pulled to make room for other important information. And that's of course, the balancing act that is impossible to walk. Do you include absolutely everything and make a 30-hour documentary that no one will watch? Do you try to trim it down? And if so, what's your criteria? My criteria when coming back and seeing what absolutely just did not make the cut, I cannot put that, I'll put this in rather than that. The criteria was this is a documentary about the history of Al-Qaeda. So everything had to keep coming back to the history of Al-Qaeda and what is the Al-Qaeda story here. And some, some paths on the War of Terror narrative start to diverge from that Al-Qaeda storyline. Um, but that doesn't, obviously, doesn't mean they're not important. In fact, some of arguably the most important points of the War of Terror story is how it diverged from that Al-Qaeda path that was the original, this is what we're talking about. This is why we're going to war. This is what this is all about, guys. It's about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Well, as I do talk about in part three, that that started to shift. And suddenly, no, it's not about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. It's much bigger than that. So that's an important part of the story. But then it makes it difficult in a history of Al-Qaeda to include some of these other parts. So you will note, for example, that the, the war in Libya, the war in Syria... Uh, get reduced down to a few minutes of screen time in part three, um, when in fact they could be there in uh, an entire documentary in and of themselves, let alone basically no mention of Yemen, Sudan, the drone war in Pakistan, all of the other aspects of the war of terror. And then how about the domestic terror idea, which as I've said in interviews is in some sense, may be seen as the real point of all of this all along. It was never about Osama. It was never about Al-Qaeda. It was always about using that as the excuse, the justification for the creation of this war of terror infrastructure that will be wielded against you. You will be deemed the terrorist because you disagree with the government or a potential terrorist because you're thinking about disagreeing with the government. That's what this was always about. And again, that gets condensed down to a couple of minutes at the very end of part three. So 
as I say, blood on the cutting room floor everywhere. Um, uh, so much of it that sits there on the cutting room floor. But having said that, we've just seen some of the uh, the part, parts that were cut out, and there will undoubtedly be follow-ups. And I've done work on this stuff in the past. I will continue to do it in the future. Um, but it's just the question of trying to fit it all into one narrative that flows well and makes sense and is watchable. Um, and that's not even taking into account the relatively minor but extremely interesting and enlightening tidbits about... Oh, remember the uh, Basra prison incident in 2005? Pepperidge Farm remembers. Again, there's so many little nuggets like that that connected together could make their own entire documentary. Um, but that will... That will, unfortunately, it will have to wait and there will be other things, other follow-ups to this. For example, one of the things that I've been at pains to stress uh, over the past year as this documentary has been rolling out, Ali Mohammed, that story is the craziest, by far, I find to be the craziest part of the official Al-Qaeda myth. Um, but still, most people, even in 9-11 Truth, have no idea about that story, um, which is an absolute travesty and a failure of the 9-11 truth movement, if nothing else. So uh, I, I definitely want to follow up a little bit more about that story because I did plan on having at least a couple of scraps of information we have post 9-11 about Ali Mohammed, who disappeared into the prison system and was never heard or seen from again, barring a couple of incidents. There are a couple of people who have claimed to have talked to him in the wake of 9-11. I was going to talk about that and talk a little bit about some of the movements in the court case that we still don't really know exactly what happened there, but there are certain motions that have been filed and things. Uh, hopefully I will get a chance to follow up on that in greater detail in the future. And also, as exactly as I did with the uh, mass media history course slash Media Matrix documentary. I did a Q&A follow-up on that. I am planning on doing a Q&A follow-up to the False Flags documentary. So if you have a Q, you would like aid, please send it in. Um, obviously, Corporate Report members can leave their questions in the comments section, why not, of this episode 425. And uh, everyone else, you can use the contact form at CorbettReport.com to send in your questions, and they will be included for well, possible inclusion in that Q&A follow-up. Um, and if I get enough questions, I will do a Q&A. If I don't, then I, I won't. Uh, I also plan to go through, as I've talked about before, my uh, War of Terror slash Al-Qaeda slash 9-11 reading list. And it's going to be a doozy. <laughs> there are dozens of books to go through. So hang on to your hat for that. So as I say, there will be more follow-up continuing to come from this, the largest single documentary project I've ever engaged on, as you might imagine. Engaged in, as you might imagine. Um, but that's going to do it for for now, and uh, we'll return to this in the future. Oh, and for those who are wondering, yes, this documentary will be available on DVD, um, but it hasn't been manufactured yet. So hang on. I, you will know when it's ready, okay? Um, thank you again for your time, your attention, your support. Once again, I would like to remark that Documentaries like this would not be pos possible without the support of Corbett Report members who pay as subscribers to make this work possible. Not only does would the documentary not exist at all if it weren't for the, the members, but also the idea that putting out a five-plus-hour documentary like this, of this grade and this quality, 
completely for free, 100% for free for anybody in the public so that you can use this as a resource to give to others. That only exists because of the support of the paying members of this website. So if you would like to contribute, not only for this past work, but also for the future work, which I will continue to do, and these types of big documentary projects, I would request and very much appreciate your support. You can find out more details about that at corbettreport.com members. On that note, I think we're going to leave it here for today. Thank you for joining me for this exploration of the cutting room floor of the False Flags documentary. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to coming back to you with much more information in the near future.